Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. Uh, We're so glad you're on this morning. It's a beautiful day out. Sun's up. Cherry blossoms are blooming. It's wonderful. And today we have Monica Mitchell on with us this, this morning. She's the Vice President of Community Development at Wells Fargo Bank. Good morning, Monica. Good morning, Vernon. How are you doing this morning? I'm great, great, great. Thank you so much for taking our time to be with us today and share your life story and what you're doing, what Wells Fargo is doing, particularly in these tough times. My I'd pleasure. Like to, Thank you. Oh, you Okay. I'd like to start off by just asking you, tell us a little bit about your history. Where did you grow up? What kind of schooling did you get? Sure. So I am born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland, proudly, and have, uh, you know, grew up in um, Baltimore. If anybody knows Baltimore, Baltimore is absolutely a tale of two cities. It's certainly an industrial town, uh, but also a place where per capita we have more private schools. Um, than almost any other place in the country. And so uh, while I grew up in Baltimore, I also attended an all-girls private school um, almost my whole life. And so from a very early age, um, you know, even almost before I realized what I was seeing, had a chance to experience truly what what the quote-unquote two Baltimores uh, were about. You know, the, the school that I went to uh, had, you know, upper, um, you know, middle upper to upper class students attending there and the neighborhoods that I would drive through uh, were, were, you know, on my way to school were some of the places that had been, you know, long forgotten in terms of development and investment in some places, not seeing any development since um, the days of the, um, the, the riots of 1968 after Dr. King's assassination. And so just um, every day was filled with, you know, with, with seeing um, both the um, opportunities of the city as well as the inequities of the city. I went on to, to attend Goucher College in Maryland and then um, received my um, degree and my graduate degree in nonprofit management from Harvard University. And in between that time, I've also gained over 20 years of experience in banking and community development. My work with Wells Fargo and, and before that, Wachovia, has allowed me to identify and direct the bank's resources uh, focused on um, that that are focused on uh, investing in communities and through the Community Reinvestment Act in um, places that need that that support across Maryland, D.C. and Northern Virginia. So I've been able to take both the um, in-classroom and just life experiences that I've been able to to have um, and acquire and put that into work in, in helping to improve communities. So you were able to, I guess, go to school, go through these different neighborhoods and see blight. And then you'd get into this 
upper class school, this girls' school, and you would see wealth. So you would see poverty and wealth same day. <laughs> oh, absolutely, the same day, twice a day. <laughs> my my commute um, consisted of me, you know, riding through the the Park Heights community um, that at one point in time had the the largest per capita of. Um, HIV, AIDS infections outside of Africa. Um, and, and, you know, due to, um, unfortunately, oftentimes the criminalization of poverty and the criminalization of, um, you know, of drug abuse, instead of looking at those issues, of looking at those as public health issues and economic issues, um, what you would also see is, is the decimation of neighborhoods and families. Um, you know, at, at that same time. And so um, the commute was, was a less than three mile commute, but you would see um, the stark realities of, of the differences in Baltimore. And not only would you see it, but, um, but that also played out in the numbers as well. Um, you know, driving between the, the Penn North community off of Pennsylvania Avenue that was once a bustling um, African-American commercial district and going to um, Roland Park, which was where my my school was located, um, there was a, a difference in life expectancy of 20 years um, between residents in the Penn North community and residents in the Roland Park community. Um, you know, you would see um, differences in home values between um, the community where I live, which was called Howard Park, and the community that I went to school, which was called Roland Park. Ironically, many of those homes were built by the same architect. But because of the um, history and because of the legacy of redlining, um, you would have homes that were worth hundreds of thousands of dollars more built by the same architect in Roland Park than, um, than the values would display in Howard Park where I lived. So, um, yes, it was, it was a, a, a very real reality, um, both seeing, experiencing, and in dollars and cents as well. So this dark difference that you could see as a young person, growing up. Is that what caused you to choose the, the career that you've chosen, community development? Um, well, part of it. And, and, you know, the other part is that I, you know, was, was so fortunate to be raised in a family where it was prioritized that, um, you know, that we always strive to, um, to make others lives better to the extent possible. And um, so I really credit my mom and my grandparents for filling that in me and, and using what we have to, um, you know, to lift up other people. I have to be honest with you, I did not know that banking offered the opportunity to, you know, to support low and moderate income communities. It was something that I honestly stumbled into. One of my first jobs in college was as a credit card collections person. So I got used to very early in my career hearing people say no to me a lot or hanging up on me. But what I also got a chance to experience, oh my goodness, um, you know, <laughs> it was, um, it was, it was such a unique experience, but Vernon, what I also got a chance to experience was hearing people across demographics and talking to people that were coming into some of the worst financial situations of their lives. And unfortunately, what we're seeing and dealing with today, you know, mirrors a lot of those conversations that I had very early on in my financial services career, where people had hit a, um, a hardship in life, whether it was a, a catastrophic illness or losing a job or, you know, some other, you know, critical thing and during their life that all of a sudden knocked them off track, made them financially um, insecure, unstable, and prevented them from being able to meet their financial obligations. And so, 
you know, what I learned during those conversations was that, first of all, those things can happen to everybody or anybody. The ability for folks to bounce back largely, largely depended on what information you had access to, what programs you had access to. And it began to be really evident that certain communities and certain populations just did not have access to the level of information that other communities had access to. And so, um, you know, armed with that information, when I went over to, um, to Wachovia and started working over there, I, I truly poured myself into the work of financial education and, and um, helping people understand the, the interest, intricacies of, um, you know, of banking and what, what folks don't always tell you. And I'll give you a really good, good example. My branch was located near college, and I would have college students coming in. And they would open a bank account and they thought because they had checks in their checkbook, they could write checks, but they did not yep. make the connection that you had to have money in the bank account <laughs> to write those checks. And it seems, you know, for those of us who may be used to writing checks and paying bills, it may seem like a no brainer, but for a college student that had never experienced that, and they thought that as long as they had checks, they could write them. And so, um, yep. it, you know, it really, it really, really um, made clear for me the need um, for financial education, um, you know, at an early age, and that being something that you don't learn in school, and then all of a sudden you turn 18, and you're, you're supposed to be responsible for these choices that, if you make bad ones, can stay on your credit report for seven to 10 years, long after, you know, you've, you've made some of those maybe ill-advised decisions. Um, and then on the other side of that, I would see elderly customers come in, and most more often than not, I see widows come in and they'd come in with folders of bank statements and say, you know, my husband handled the finances and I didn't know anything about it. And now he's passed away. And I don't know. I don't even know what we have. I don't even know how I'm going to continue to pay the mortgage or continue to pay for my health care. And um, seeing folks that would come in overwhelmed and in tears. And so it um, for me hit home that regardless of age, of demographics, of any of those things, um, financial health and having access to that information was crucial and that the banking industry served as a critical resource for folks. But we really had to be more proactive about getting that information out there. You know, what you, as you're talking, reminds me that I, I make the statement, I've heard it often, that most Americans, regardless of how much money they make, are three months away from homelessness mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> because mm -hmm. the more money Americans make, the bigger the house they get, the more credit they have, the bigger the car they get, a more expensive car. And therefore, if you don't have income for three months, then more likely is you can be evicted or your house taken. Mm -hmm. And I was in one meeting at a co-op and I said that and this this lady looked at me she was on the board she said oh no, that's not true and I looked at her, what are you talking about she said I'm only one month away from you <laughs> <laughs> okay so yes had, and yes I, and, and that's the sad reality and and to be honest with you many of us have probably heard the encouragement that that folks should have you know three months of savings tucked away in the case of an emergency and what we've seen quite frankly over the last couple of weeks is that you know you've got companies that that have gone a week <laughs> two weeks uh, without business and they're on the verge of bankruptcy. And so, you know, what we've been told as individuals, you know, the same probably holds true for companies as well. They would, you know, they just may not be held to the same standard or same level of responsibility, but it is really crucial 
that, um, you know, that we think about those things and realize how close our neighbors or we are to um, catastrophe. I mean, 40 percent of Americans don't have um, $400 in savings to meet an unexpected expense. So it really is, um, you know, more dire than I think we, you know, we talk about as a whole. Monica, I I remember the number of the research, it was 47 percent. And the only reason I wanted to get that closer to 50 percent of Americans don't have $400. That hit me so hard. I couldn't understand why people will will steal a hundred dollars and, 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 you know, end up potentially in jail for a long time until I heard that stat that a lot of people mm-hmm. just don't have, don't have it. We're going to take our first break. We got a minute away from taking our first break. So what I really want to do, come back. I thank you for sharing. Grew up in Baltimore and proud of it. A wonderful yes. family, <laughs> private girls school. So you, you, there was something going on positive in your life financially and your your parents, particularly your mother and grandparents, help you to get this sense of helping other people, not here mm-hmm. just to help self, out here to, to help other people. And so we'll be right back, and we'll get into talking about Wells Fargo. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that down. News Talk Station. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. Uh, we are we have the absolute pleasure of having Monica Mitchell on with us today. She's the Vice President of Community Development for Wells Fargo Bank. And Monica, thanks for sharing uh, your history. So, in talking to you before, I found out that you are a mom, so there's something else going on in your life, <laughs> your private side. So how many children do you have, or what's that all about? What's that side of your life about? Yes, I have two sons. I have an 18-year-old son, and I also have a soon-to-be 17-year-old son. And, um, you know, unfortunately, the 18-year-old son is, is facing the fact that for a lot of the milestones that we look forward to as high school seniors, you know, they may be delayed or, or postponed or, you know, may not happen. And so, you know, he's he's... He's dealing with it pretty well, but uh, we're trying to find some alternative ways for for us to celebrate as we self self distance. But I have mm-hmm. I have some great boys who are you know the absolute joys of my life, and um, and it's actually been quite quite a joy to be able to do this work while they've been able to to watch me do it. Um, for my youngest son, I've homeschooled him for much of my career as well. It's a whole nother show, um, but mm. I've, I've had the chance to um, to bring him along when on a lot of the work that I've done and for him to be able to see what impact, you know, you can make when you're working within your passion and, you know, working to help lift up other people. So what is this work that your sons are able to see? What is it that you do? Sure. So um, in my role, I'm responsible for making sure that Wells Fargo is um, meeting its, its, um, its both its goals and requirements under the Community Reinvestment Act, um, ensuring that banks are investing in um, and making services available in low and moderate income communities. And I also oversee our philanthropy for Maryland and serve as a senior advisor for our philanthropy in D.C., Washington, D.C., and Northern Virginia. 
So, you know, my, my work allows the opportunity for me to see all the incredible things that are going on in our communities, meeting with nonprofits, meeting with community leaders, meeting with residents and seeing, you know, not only the um, resilience, but creativity that, um, you know, that goes on in our, our communities, oftentimes out and usually out of necessity, but also seeing those things and identifying how, you know, organizations such as Wells Fargo and, and other organizations that make grants and, and resources available can help support that work, especially because for you know, for many of our communities, these are neighborhoods that have not been invested in to the extent that other higher income neighborhoods have been invested in. So they're able to see this work. You're able to share it with them, perhaps take this is your challenge and take them with you, say, the 17 year old, particularly you're homeschooling him and you get a chance to really get some live examples of impact that the work that Wells Fargo is doing through you or is helping these communities. So what are some of the kinds of things that you do? Sure. So, for example, you know, in Maryland, there's an, you know, there's an initiative um, happening around affordable housing and recognizing the importance of having African-American and other minority um, nonprofit housing developers develop the housing for low and moderate income communities. Not only is it important for those organizations to develop in, in the community because they know the community, the community members trust them, but because they live and have been operating in the community, it's much less likely that they're going to be taking advantage of residents than, you know, some developer that's coming in from, you know, another state. And I'm not saying all developers do that, but, but um, you know, they're not coming in and only looking at the dollars and cents of um, the possibilities in a community, but they're, they're looking at the ability to um, provide what, what every person deserves, which is safe and affordable housing, mm-hmm. access to the ability to build generational wealth or to pass wealth down to, you know, to the next generation. And oftentimes have been so entrenched in the communities that they are the anchors and they, you know, they have inroads into, you know, what community members needs are more so than, you know, oftentimes even some some of the government officials do just because community members trust them. And so, you know, part of my responsibility is identifying what some of their needs may be or how to invest in their infrastructure to help get them to those goals and um, to those outcomes sooner. So whether it's um, investing in the establishment of um, a co-op. So, you know, for the example that I just mentioned for the nonprofit housing developers, investing in the establishment of a co-op so that they can have cooperative buying power. They may not be the same size as one of the larger developers, but if you get 10 smaller nonprofits that are utilizing their buying power at one time, they can, you know, they can negotiate better prices and pass that savings on to to the uh, properties that they're developing as with one of the larger developers. So, you know, that that's one you know, example of, of how we're leveraging our resources to um, to invest in. And that and that investment is through making both grants and very low interest rate loans available to to those organizations. You said grants. You know, grants. Grants yeah, is grants. give way. You don't have to pay that money back. That's yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's right. That um, should get somebody's attention. Okay. <laughs> and um, you know, in making those grants available it's really important because 
you know, that, that allows for some capital that, again, to your point, does not need to be paid, paid back can boost up balance sheets or allow an organization to be a little bit more flexible or allow them to build up their infrastructure and hire maybe folks that they need to hire to get to their, their next goals. So it can be really helpful to an organization if they're undergoing a, um, a development project and they need to hire a project manager. That's a big expense or hire, um, mm-hmm. hire someone to do the um, you know, pre-development work if, if they're going to be developing some affordable housing, um, site surveys and architects and all of those things cost money even before you um, can look at any potential return on your investment. And um, so grants, making grants available for organizations can really help them bring projects to fruition much faster. Well, I want to give a shout out to Mikasa, who's in D.C., Mana, mm-hmm. who's in D.C., Housing Counseling Services Training. These are D.C. people. I don't know the people in Baltimore. I do know that Ron Hansen, uh Intentional Communities has been doing some work in Baltimore. Matter of fact, that's where I met you at a conference that he had put on. So these are some yes. people I know that are doing really, really great work providing a for And, and Mikasa is doing um, an incredible job. I mean, you know, Fernando over there, I just was talking to him maybe a week and a half ago and the work that they're doing with folks and, and TOPA and, you know, helping, you know, ensure that residents can, you know, take ownership of, of their properties as the opportunity becomes available. And their intergenerational work over at Genesis is, you know, a model for, um, you know, for communities and, and nonprofits to be able to follow. So I, it's, it's an organization that I highly admire. Uh, me too. <laughs> okay. And I've, I've probably been working with them for 15, 20 years. I, in my day job, I, I just closed my business, but I've been doing property management. So I got a chance to come in and manage different properties that these developers created. And it was nice coming behind. Well, Mana was the beginning. They helped me to get started. It's nice coming behind them. They do good work. Mana yes, Reverend Jim, I just talked to him about a, a two weeks ago as well. Absolutely. Oh, I haven't talked to Jim Dickerson in so long. It's not funny, but uh, yeah, they've got good people over there. Roseanne Look, mm-hmm. uh, she's been there a long time, and 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 Mikasa Ellen Zerbrig has been there a long time. So it's a good people doing good work. Yeah, absolutely. So, and when you yeah. have good people doing good work, it's um, you know, it's really important. You know, like I mentioned, to to identify ways that you know, that, that we can support. And I mentioned in passing, but I just want to touch up on this a little bit more, the Community Reinvestment Act, which is a little bit over a 40-year-old uh, act that, you know, came out of and as a result of fair housing laws and the, and the civil rights movement to ensure that banks were investing in the communities, in all of the communities that they serve. And so banks by size have requirements on, you know, what they are expected to by, um, you know, the, the government oversight agencies to invest in um, historically underserved communities, both by making sure that the ability to make deposits available, by having bank locations and access to depository services, as well as other banking products like loans and mortgages, you know, at affordable um, rates. Are, are available and um, to, you know, to the point of my specific role, making sure that loans and investments are available for organizations as they also work to build up communities. Great place to stop for our second break. 
you're doing good work. And when we come back, we talked about affordable housing, but I'd like to get into the other things that you're doing in building community development. But we'll be right back. Talk station. The program is Everything Co-op. This is Vernon Oaks, and we have Monica Mitchell on with us, the Vice President of Community Development at Wells Fargo Bank. The National Co-op Bank is sponsoring this program. NCB uh, has been working with us now for six and a half years. They've done a great job of not only providing financial resources, but people and ideas of ways of enhancing this program. Monica, before we took the break, we talked about affordable housing. You've already talked about financial education is one of the things you do. So what else do you do in this community development? Sure. So one of the other really important areas that we focus on, in addition to financial health and, and, and housing affordability, is small business growth. I mean, we know that the majority of jobs in this country are created by small businesses. And if we didn't know it before, um, these past couple of weeks have definitely demonstrated that. You know, we just have, I think it came out this morning, seen the highest um, unemployment, joblessness numbers in, you know, in the history of our country. And that is because so many small businesses have been forced to close over the COVID-19 outbreak. And part of my work and, you know, certainly well of advance of, of this latest crisis has been to ensure that low and moderate income communities and historically underserved and underrepresented communities within the small business space like minorities and women are able to not only have the resources to establish businesses, but also have access to the um, capital needed to to grow their businesses, um, to grow in serving them, to to um, expand and making sure they're able to hire more employees, and most importantly, to ensure their um, resiliency throughout um, good economic times and, and oftentimes more challenging economic times. And so um, like that now, work yeah. is um, really fulfilling as well. Yeah, challenging times is what we have right now for businesses and individuals losing their jobs. And then businesses, uh, I just heard yesterday how many restaurants who are likely to go bankrupt because they've mm-hmm. had to close. Uh, and then how many jobs will likely close. I, the person from the restaurant industry was talking was, I think they said that restaurants hire more people than anybody else except for the government. I did not know that. Wow. He said. Okay. So what have you done with co-ops? This is called Everything Co-ops, and you just talked about small businesses. And before, I, before you answer that, let me just tell everybody there are four types of cooperative businesses, uh, four sectors, if you will. And it depends on who owns and controls the business. If the business is owned and controlled by the employees, it's called a worker co-op. And therefore, any business could be a worker co-op. If it's owned and controlled by the persons that uses the products, then it's a consumer co-op. Housing co-ops, credit union, food co-ops are normal types of consumer co-ops. The REI, which has a uh, flagship store here in D.C., is a consumer co-op. And then if a group of people come together and 
you've already talked about they could come together and form a purchasing co-op uh, that they purchase their products to like together. And farmers have done this. Uh, artists are doing it. In D.C., there's something called a Consumer Purchasing Alliance, and they've worked with non-profit government entities, uh, charter schools, to help them. And churches particularly were paying a lot of money for uh, copy machines and gas and electric and garbage pickup. Mm -hmm. So they've helped them save money. And so that's a purchasing co-op. And then if a group of people come together and form, they could form a market co-op or marketing co-op. Sometimes it's called a producer co-op to sell their products. And farmers are doing that, like Cabot Creamery, Land O'Lakes, Ocean Spray. But artists are beginning to do this. Uh, Ujama in Pittsburgh is a group of uh, African-American ladies that some make jewelry, um, some make clothing, paintings, carvings. And then they open up a storefront where individually they couldn't do it, but collectively they could pool their resources and open a storefront to sell their their art. Uh, and that's Ujama. The, the only problem I had when I met with them, Monica, is I went over and met with them last summer. Their prices are too low. <laughs> it's hard to tell a company. Your prices are compared to what you pay here in New York. Uh, their prices are very, very low. So they had great products and good pricing. So that's the different four types. So what have you been doing in, as as a community VP of community development for Wells Fargo to help these co-ops either get started or money to keep them to help them to grow or sustain themselves in these tough times. Sure. So, so before I speak to what I've done in my professional role, I do want to mention that in my personal life, I've also helped found an all girls charter school in Baltimore city as well. And, and I'll mention the connectivity to, you know, to your question in a moment, but as I mentioned, you know, all girls education was really central to, to who I am because what you learn in an all girls environment as a young woman is that, you know, the best student can be the best student in math or, or science can be a young woman. Um, you know, the, the, the student government president can be a woman that, you know, the best athlete on the field can be a woman. And so you, you grow up and walk through life um, without any doubt that any position that, that, you know, you seek to hold can, without a shadow of a doubt, be held and excelled at by a woman. And so to be able to learn how to walk through life with that level of confidence is, I think, really important. And I think was, has also been central to my success and my early success in a field where upper level executives are oftentimes dominated um, men holding those positions. I became a vice president within Wells Fargo at the age of 25 years old and, you know, was the youngest and oftentimes only African-American in the rooms in which I was sitting um, where we were making, you know, high level decisions in our in, in our Maryland market. And so, you know, I credit a, a significant portion of, um, you know, my ability to, to be in those rooms very early on to, um, you know, the lessons that I learned in attending an all-girls school. And so, you know, when the opportunity came a few years ago to work with my alma mater in establishing a public charter school to help serve as a multiplier, every girl can't afford or every girl's family can't afford a private school tuition and every, you know, private schools are limited in the number of or in the amount of financial aid that they can offer. And so identifying a way to create a multiplier effect almost where girls have the opportunity to get access to 
a world-class level education, but families do not have to pay that deep tuition was especially appealing to me and provided me the, the opportunity to pay forward all of the wonderful things that I've had access to in my life around supportive environments and, and high quality education. And, you know, and just folks that are around you that believe in your ability to accomplish um, incredible things. So Wells Fargo, believe it or not, gave me a four month fully paid sabbatical six years ago to work on the, to work on the organizational development and establishment of the school. And that was so important because it allowed me the opportunity to um, fully form our board. Um, that was during the time where I was able to get um, approval through Baltimore City Public Schools for the, um, for the formation of the school and get our charter approved and do the work of hiring our um, wonderful executive director and founding principal to, you know, to then carry on that day-to-day work. And, and it's, um, where I still continue to serve as as um, founding president of the board. The school is called Lily Mae Carol Jackson School in Baltimore, Maryland, and it um, is a school for fifth through eighth grade girls in Baltimore City. Um, but the reason that I mentioned that in, in conjunction with your question is because, to your point, as a charter school, we certainly benefit from a cooperative model in you know, maximizing our purchasing power when very early on um, when we were looking for things like accounting services and, and, you know, cleaning services and construction services, we were counting on our counterparts to, you know, to help provide referrals to us. And then quickly realized that, you know, in utilizing some of the same partners, um, we would be able to negotiate much better prices um, mm-hmm. when those partners recognized that, you know, there were a group of us. Utilizing their services, we were able to negotiate, you know, prices down, which obviously helped with the operations of the school. And those partners were able to benefit because they could count on having more clients more and, and overall yeah. having having more income. So, you know, I absolutely know and see the value of it. It allows us to stretch our dollars where we want to have as, you know, as much of every dollar possible going towards the education of our girls. It's allowed us to have um, 87 cents of every dollar going into the work of a classroom versus, you know, having very wait, wait, ho, 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 ho. I'm sorry. 87% of every dollar you get goes to the classroom? That's correct. That's awesome. You passed that too quick. That is great. <laughs> <laughs> That's phenomenal. So only 13% goes to overhead kind of stuff? Is that what you're saying, or is that something else? That's right. goes to administrative costs. And so that's really important because, you know, when when we're trying to make sure, you know, that we're delivering that high-quality education without charging a private school tuition, you know, the only way that you can do that is by maximizing um, every single penny of the of the dollars that that come into the institution, and so that cooperative model is really central to our being able to provide the best services and best quality teachers and and um, materials and education possible to the girls. So I really would highly recommend you you reach out to Community Purchasing Alliance. Uh, they're in D.C., but their their next move is to go to different cities to duplicate this model for charter schools and churches and nonprofits that they could purchase things together. And they, they do solar panels. I bought my copy machine through them, and I was amazed at the, at the great contract that they had created that was in my favor, not in the favor of... I think it was Xerox I got it from. So mm-hmm. it, it, it's copy great. machines it are so expensive. <laughs> yes. <laughs> really Absolutely. Are. 
Yeah, <laughs> I did absolutely. not have an appreciation for them until until doing this work. But I mean, they're central to um, what teachers need to to do their work, and I was amazed at how much they cost. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so that's what you your personal side of it. You got a really yeah. upfront good taste of what co-ops can do. But there's one quote I'd like to share with you when you're talking about level of confidence for women. Dame Pauline Green, who used to be the president of the International Cooperative Alliance, uh, the, the international umbrella group of co-ops all over the world, she said that co-ops bring people out of poverty with dignity. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I remember that one because of this confidence. If you can get this confidence, this dignity, this is the training that happens in co-ops. That's the fifth principle, education, training, and information. The people learn how to manage a business collectively, and that gives them a lot of dignity no matter what where they come from, from on the political scale or the educational scale or socioeconomic scale. Folks can really get that dignity and come out of poverty with co-ops. So I just wanted to put that in there. So. Question again is, what are you doing in your business in Wells Fargo to help co-ops? What's your experience, sure. at least? So I mentioned the, you know, the work in, in Baltimore that, you know, that, that's emerging on the affordable housing side. We also work with an organization called LEDC, Latino Economic Development Corporation, and they have an entity under them called Emerging Women International, EWI, where they work with, um, with women, immigrant women uh, who are, you know, who are makers. And, and that model is absolutely cooperative and, and very similar to the model that you mentioned in Pennsylvania, where the women are taking skills that they already had. And, and LEDC is providing this additional technical assistance and small business training um, for these women to produce their goods and, um, and sell them. But because they follow a cooperative model, they're able to, to get those goods to market much faster. They're able to, um, you know, negotiate better, better, you know, prices on, on, you know, with their buying power and able to get more customers in as a collective than they might be able to do on their own. And so, you know, that's one of the other programs that we, we certainly proudly support. And then as business owners think about their own succession planning. You know, you mentioned employee uh, or worker co-op, you know, some some of our groups within the bank who help business owners on their succession planning are able to help them turn their businesses into an employee-owned entity. And that's really important because as we think about, again, wealth building and creation, but also the transfer of wealth when generations pass or, or move on, you know, in the case of business owners. That employee-owned model is is a really important one that I think historically has been underutilized, but but we certainly have the ability to tap more into as people become aware of it. Have you been able to help some of these conversions? Well, let me say it a different way. Um, We're going to come back and talk about this as soon as we finish our last break. (laughs) We'll be right back. Information is power, and that's why in that WL is a great partner. We give information here so that if you use it, go out and find co-ops to do work with or start your own co-op, then you'll have power. We were talking about conversions before we took break, and I've been to the Cincinnati Union biannual meetings, and there I learned that majority of small businesses are owned by 
baby boomers, and they're getting ready to retire. And too often the siblings, uh, the, the children don't want to get go into that business. So those businesses sometimes will just go out of business and people lose their jobs. Sometimes a larger company will come in and buy it and maybe close it down and people will lose their business and it hurts the community. So one really, really great strategy is to convert those to where the owners, the, the employees become the owners. So have you been able to do any of those? So the actual conversion of those falls under a different business line than I have. But what, you know, what my role is, is to be able to, in some way, serve as a quarterback and directing organizations that wish to, you know, wish to take those steps to the representatives and our and business lines in our bank who are able to do that. But I do have one great example of of a um, organization. We did not, we were not the institution to advise the owner. He was working with another um, attorney on this, but we have since helped support philanthropically the organization. And this was a, a gentleman who owned an auto repair shop in Baltimore for decades. And upon his decision to um, retire and, and relocate with his wife, co-op was not an option, but he wanted to make sure that his business continued to be of use to the community. And what he did was he ended up transitioning his business over to a nonprofit that focuses on auto repair and training folks who are returning citizens or formerly incarcerated individuals in the industry of automotive repair. And automotive repair is a unique industry because you can scale an income rather quickly as you attain additional certifications. And this, this nonprofit is now able to quickly train individuals to become automotive mechanics and, you know, scaling up to, you know, be diesel certified and other certifications where they can make up to, you know, upwards of $100,000 in their new industry within a very short period of time. And, you know, what I appreciated about that model is that, first of all, the owner did at least consider a cooperative model and then ultimately chose a model that still served um, community good. And through that, um, through that organization, which is called Vehicles for Change, where Wells Fargo does support them philanthropically, they, are, they offer then services to the community, affordable automotive repairs because those those individuals who are training are performing those services. So they're performing them with oversight, but they are um, performing them at a at a discounted cost to community members. And so in that sense, it is absolutely a, a cooperative where the consumers are able to take advantage of a, you know, much better price on what, what we all know um, can be very expensive, very expensive repairs on cars. And so it, it just helps everybody in that full circle and actually, the ironically, the the name of the um, the automotive repair piece is called Full Circle Automotive Repair because everybody within that circle is gaining benefit from um, from those services. That is a great story. You said it's a great because what you just said, I did a little arithmetic here, and so if somebody's making a hundred thousand dollars a year, that's fifty bucks an hour. So mm -hmm. going from I don't know somebody coming out of prison, they may not be able to get a job paying 15 bucks an hour. They might only get an mm -hmm. $8 an hour job. But to be able to get into a program that leads them to 50 bucks an hour is just phenomenal. So they get the training they need. So you're helping somebody not go back. And this is, there's a, there's a co-op bakery in Italy that uh, is in the prisons. It's in the prisons and out of the prisons. So when a prisoner comes out, 
Uh, he has a family. He has a job. He has a career. Mm-hmm. He has ownership. Uh, they only had like 3% of the prisoners going back. I don't know, compared that's, that's to 75% That's almost ex- exact. Yep, that, yeah. that's the same yeah. with um, with vehicles for change. I mean, they have an extraordinarily low recidivism rate because, you know, folks are coming out. First of all, the training is paid. Um, and, and so, you know, they get paid training. It's not, you know, it's not a huge amount, but it's something. Um, and then they also know that within a few months of, of you know, and, and completing their certifications, they will have paid jobs. And um, um, Vehicles for Change, um, you know, has relationships with many of the car dealerships across the mid-Atlantic area. They, you know, started their work in Baltimore, but are expanding their work into Prince George's County and have a location in Detroit as well. And across the locations, they see a very low recidivism rate because folks are able to work and earn and, and you know, navigate life, again, to your point, with dignity. And once you're mm-hmm. able to do that and you provide people options, you know, <laughs> that you, you, don't, you don't go back because you've, you've finally it, given people choices. And well, a lot um, of times that's you know, why they end up in prison in the first place because they didn't have right. choice. I mean, that happens too that's often. exactly right. So they feel good about themselves and they can take care of their families and take care of other people and they feel good. They can do a job and they can see quality work. Mm-hmm. It works. It's win, 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 win. Yeah. That's I'm right. And for, for the um, automotive repair, for the affordable automotive repair, it's great because those, those folks know that as they're learning, they're able to pass on savings to other folks who, you know, may be going through their own economic challenges. So even in their training, they know that they're helping to lift somebody else up. And so even in in learning the work, there's dignity in that. And then the group has partnered with um, an organization to be able to provide very low-cost loans for expensive automotive repairs that also serve as credit-building products. So, you know, even um, if a person has challenged credit, through this other nonprofit agency that that we also work with, um, they're able to get a loan if they need a transmission repair or one of those repairs that ends up costing more money, even at the reduced rate. A person can get a, a loan, even if they've had challenged credit history, and that loan can serve as a credit rebuilder loan. So they are rebuilding their credit. They are getting an affordable car repair so they can continue to go to work or get their kids to school and do other things and navigate life. And those folks in the program are learning how to um, repair cars all at the same time. So do you like what you're doing? Do you like your job? <laughs> I heard you say passion earlier and I hear it, but I just want to ask you that. <laughs> I love what I'm do what I'm doing and what I do. I love the ability to, like I say, you know, pay forward the, you know, the, the, the good things that I've had in, in, in life to um, learn from. I feel like I'm constantly learning in my role. And it's one of the things that I absolutely adore is um, is being a lifelong learner. And so, you know, before this, I, I would have never been able to speak intelligently about an automotive repair place or, or, you know, or, or you know, tell you about the intricacies of, of pre-development work on, you know, a multifamily housing unit or, you know, speak to the work that happens at Dog Tag Bakery, which is a, you know, another organization that we work with that supports veterans um, in, um, you know, in, in entrepreneurship as well. And so I get a chance to learn about so many cool and wonderful things. Um, I am constantly surrounded by the good that people are doing in this world. And, um, and I'll also get a chance to, um, 
identify and direct Wells Fargo's resources and work with an incredible team internally with Wells Fargo that are all committed to, you know, to seeing us use our resources to lift communities up and, and make sure that they succeed financially as well. So, yeah, I really, really do enjoy my work. And I appreciate that I have a voice, you know, within the company where, you know, if I, you know, if I have an idea or think that something can be done better, that, you know, that I have the pathways to be able to communicate that. Well, I really thank you for giving us your voice to tell us about what you are doing, what Wells Fargo is doing. And you got the benefits of this co-op. You get that really clear in, in all that you're doing. So less than a minute going, but what would you like to leave people with? What message would you like to leave people with? I just want everybody to recognize not only their own individual power, but our collective power. You know, we may not have all the resources at, you know, at any given moment in time to get where we want to get on our own. You know, but when we, we pull our resources together, when we think as a unit and what we can do as a community, yeah, we can almost always be unstoppable. Unstoppable. Thank you. That's a place to stop. We're unstoppable. <laughs> Everybody out there, uh, please live this week cooperatively. Thank you, Monica. Thank you very much. Thank you, Vernon. All right. Bye now. Bye now.